Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we're going to talk about skateboarding. And first things first, Caroline, skateboarding terrifies me. (laughs) Well, Kristen, I agree. Uh, but I have no natural balance, so really anything that requires me to balance on or around anything is is vaguely terrible, including walking, uh, running, standing. Those things are also quite difficult for me. I did grow up next door, though, to two boys who were super into skating. Like, they were out day and night all the time on their skateboards, and we had in our neighborhood this huge, terrifying hill that was, you know, hard enough to walk up. But imagine like skating down that hill and that they would do that all the time. And they tried to get me on the skateboard, but my like my physical being would only allow me to sit on the skateboard. I couldn't. I was too scared to even try to stand. Yeah, I gave skateboarding a very brief whirl in my younger days and quickly landed directly on my butt. Mm -hmm. I think that's the scientific word for it. (laughs) And, uh, and it, and it really jostled me. And I'm a little embarrassed the degree to which I am bodily harm risk averse. Uh, yeah. And I've never really taken a, a chance since. So, I mean, I think this could be perhaps a good opportunity for us to try to skateboard. Right now? I mean, we could. Yeah. I, let's bring these mics on the road. Let's take these mics on the road. <laughs> you ready? Let's do it. Okay. So Caroline and I are outside, we're outside the podcast studio, Caroline's just nodding. I'm just nodding, yeah, we're about to do our own stunts. Yeah. I bet you didn't know that we do our own stunts for the podcast. I didn't know we do our own stunts (laughs) for the podcast, and uh, we're standing next to a skateboard. It's a real skateboard, (laughs) listeners. Genuine, a genuine skateboard. And I took my shoes off, because I I guess that's how you do this, right? (laughs) Yeah, if we're in California, especially. Okay. But we're not, but we're going to try to be genuine, just like the skateboard. All right. So, I'm going to just try to do this, Caroline. All right? Go for it. Here we go. Um, this is just for the podcast. Woo! Oh, I'm rolling. Oh! <laughs> oh! Okay. <laughs> I, I don't even like now that I'm actually on it. My everything in my body is like, don't do it. It might be better. I know. <laughs> what if I just do it and I keep my my other foot on the ground the whole time? That's fine. I'm standing upright. You're doing it, Caroline. <laughs> All right, I'm I'm now sitting on the skateboard just like I did when I was a scared child. Here I go. I'm going. I'm leaning so that I He's turn. Really moving. I'm really going, you guys. Here we go. All right, I'm gonna lean to the left. Woo! There we go. You gotta get the shoulder into it when you're pushing yourself on the ground. Well, that happened. <laughs> yes, you can say that that happened. You can say that that happened, uh, Caroline. Though I am curious uh, about something you you teased me with 
before this podcast, you were like, hey, I've got skateboard pet stories. Yeah, I I wish that I could say that I put my dog on a skateboard because that would be one cool dog. Uh, that dog would therefore be cooler than, than I am. But I combined my love of my dogs and taking them on walks with my fear of standing on a skateboard. So I took my, my neighbor friend's board and sat on it and then had my dogs drag me like a chariot. Caroline, you must paint a more vivid visual picture for me. <laughs> what kind of dogs are we talking? Okay, so we're talking, they were blonde, uh, lab retriever mixes. I know some people call them yellow labs. I prefer blonde. Um, but yeah, they had, they had a, one had a pink leash, one had a purple leash, Sophie and Molly. And I would sit on the board in my, in my shorts and my little t-shirt and, and get pulled like the non-skateboarding goddess that I was. Sounds like a real girls' night out. <laughs> ladies on the town. That's right. Absolutely ladies on the town slash in, in the neighborhood. Uh, not leaving the neighborhood. <laughs> ladies on the driveway. Right. Uh, but no, and enough about me and my, my blonde animals. I, I wanna, I wanna learn, how did, how did you get the idea to, to talk about this today, Kristen? Caroline, I've actually been thinking about women in skateboarding for a while. Ever since I ran across uh, photos of the original Betty, as she's called, Patty McGee. Cool lady. Cool, really cool lady. And we're going to talk about her in the podcast. And she was, some, some cite her as the first technically professional female skateboarder. And she also made the cover of Life magazine. And... I got really into her biography um, a little while back. Actually, made a stuff mom never told you herstory video. It's a great video, and thank you. And that which, host, I feel like the host in that episode, she was she was really onto something. She's a little antagonistic, <laughs> always with her guests. Um, but Patty was able to to get through it somehow. Now, what kind of skateboard tricks were you doing aside from just cutting up the asphalt? We were just kind of figuring things out. So we would still do things like three sixties and 180, hanging 5, hanging 10, wheelies, nose wheelies, foot over foot, not to mention my signature move, which was doing a handstand on my skateboard. And then not long ago, I read this article in Wired Magazine by skateboarder turned programmer, Catherine Sierra, who was sort of not, I don't want to say taking on because she wasn't being combative directly to Rodney Mullen, but questioning this premise that Wired had put forth earlier of whether also pro skateboarder Rodney Mullen could revolutionize the tech industry because he came out with his TED talk called Papanali and Innovate. And his whole idea is sort of taking the ethos of the skateboarding culture, subculture, I should say, and applying it to tech innovation, which, Mm -hmm. as Sierra talks about, at the heart of it is a great idea, but she also cringes at the idea of what she calls lionizing the sexist culture of skateboarding and applying it to the sexist culture in Silicon Valley. Yeah, because when you remove any type of sexism or sex divisions in Skating. I mean, it seems like a great idea. Innovation, a casual, really fun culture that's inclusive, mainly of one type of person. Um, you know, people sharing their tricks, sharing their skills, teaching each other, trading ideas. That all sounds great. That could inspire any industry. Let's be open. Let's trade ideas. But then, you know, when she brings up the whole aspect of, well, skating kind of became this 
gender exclusive pastime that was really marketed, I mean, on purpose, marketed to teen boys. And that made the culture very sort of averse to anyone who was different. That's not such a great model for the tech industry. Yeah, I mean, and it also opened my eyes to how we take for granted today that skateboarding is a male-dominated subculture, although it's now getting so much attention and funding from companies as mainstream as Nike that it's you, it might not even be so much of a subculture anymore. But Sierra points out how, hey, when I started skating, it was not always that way. Mm-hmm. So, Caroline, whenever I hear like something gender wise that we take for granted wasn't always that way, <laughs> that always sets off a sminty light bulb in my head. I think there actually is like a corner of my brain now that is 100% devoted to stuff mom never told you. And I have, it lights up. Yeah, I have a little easy bake oven light <laughs> yeah. that goes on and it kind of buzzes. And it like vaguely smells like brownies, like whenever it happens. <laughs> now I know why I'm so hungry all the time. <laughs> So we did some digging and found some history, some skateboarding history and skateboarding history. That's right. And we're going to start it off with a really optimistic, positive, wonderful quote by First Betty, Patty McGee. She says, I myself think that skateboarding is 100% just as much for girls as it is for boys. That sounds really promising. She told that to Skateboarding Magazine in 1965. She was the, the cover girl for that for that issue, right? That's right. She was the very first woman on the cover of Skateboarding Magazine. Well, as we'll see, it, it definitely did have some more egalitarian roots than it would have later on. But let's talk about where skating came from. Uh, it was really born in... Uh, Around the 1950s, some surfers basically Frankenstein together a skateboard out of roller skate wheels and a, a literal board. Caroline, I tried to do that when I was a kid with my rollerblade wheels and some old wood in my parents' garage. It did not go as planned. How were you trying to adhere the wheels to the wood? Nails, Caroline. Of course. <laughs> were you nailing the whole actual roller blade or just the wheels? I sawed off <laughs> the the wheel panel from the <laughs> the boot and then nailed it to this piece of wood I found. Listen, friends, when you're homeschooled, this is art class. Well, it, it's also like, you know, who who can really pinpoint who invented fire or who discovered fire first? <laughs> right. No one. No and, one. And, and so Kristen was one of many children, myself not included, who who discovered that you could put these wheels on this piece of wood yeah. and use it for transportation. I was doing it 40 years late, but hey, uh, I don't know, A for effort? Um, in 1959, though, roller derby skateboard hit the market. And that was kind of the first mass-marketed skateboard. And again, it was basically roller skate wheels on a wooden board. (laughs) But this, I mean, this was called sidewalk surfing. This was surfers looking for a way to continue their pastime, which, you know, was starting to be big at the same time. It was starting to become a huge pastime for all types of Americans, mainly Americans who live near water, um, when there were no waves. And so, therefore, it was called sidewalk surfing. Sidewalk surfing. I love how old school that is. Yeah. Are you going to go out sidewalk surfing and smoke some grass? <laughs> Watch out for the kids. Watch out for the kids. That's my concerned parent yeah. of, uh, of 1959. Well, you know, if you were a concerned parent in 1959, you were probably getting more concerned moving into the 1960s because that's when skateboarding, not just 
sidewalk surfing as a way to surf when you can't actually get into the water, that's when skateboarding hits mainstream pop culture. Yeah, in 1963, the first skateboard contest is held in Hermosa, California. And this is really when skateboarding is the hot new fad. You have this rock and roll duo named Jan and Dean. Those are two guys, by the way, Jan and Dean, who go on the Dick Clark show. Big deal. People not familiar with this. Huge deal. Huge deal. And old Dean pulls out a few simple skate tricks on stage. I'm sure I'm, this was groundbreaking. Yeah. I'm sure this was like the, the equivalent of Elvis's pelvis. <laughs> yeah. Shaking around. And parents were probably horrified. Look at how, how not so fast he's rolling <laughs> across my television screen. <laughs> Dean. Um, yeah. And then around the same time, ABC Wide World of Sports broadcasts the skateboarding championship. So like that's how quickly this enters the pop culture uh, universe. I mean, all of a sudden we have skateboarding championships from surfers putting uh, wheels on a board. Yeah, I mean, I have a feeling that this has to do with how you know surfer culture was becoming more professionalized, getting more marketing attention. Whenever there's a money spike, mm-hmm. you always have you know media and marketers starting to, to skitter toward it. Um, then though, we get to 1965, and this is. It seems like simultaneously the climax and the denouement of 1960s skateboarding, because as Skateboarding Magazine reports, it's almost as if it died overnight. It was a huge thing one day and then no more. And some of that probably had to do with how skateboards were made at the time and how nervous parents were about this newfangled sidewalk surfing. Right. I mean, they did have clay wheels, which did make it dangerous. We get in 1966 the short film called Devil's Toy, uh, which sounds like it was the skateboarding equivalent of Reefer Madness, perhaps, um, warning of the dangers of skateboarding. Yeah, it's probably about how, you know, you'll ride your devil's toy to buy some reefer and right. go mad. I know. I know. You'll go mad. You'll you'll jump out of a window on your skateboard. <laughs> exactly. Just like Helen Hunt. Just like Helen Hunt. Although that was PCP. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the 1970s, despite the fact that people had kind of assumed that this whole skateboarding thing was dying, we do see some technological advance- advancements, both for the wheels and the boards themselves. Um, in 1972, Frank Nasworthy invents urethane wheels, which makes the whole deal a little bit more sturdy. Yeah, and then you have surfers coming up again, inspiring more radical styles of skating. And in the 1970s, you have the first professional skaters really gaining popularity and showing off crazy new techniques during the contest that are... They're able to do because of these new things like the urethane wheels. And then in 1978, for, for instance, you have a guy named Alan Gelf, whom people nicknamed Ollie, who invented a little something called the Ollie. <laughs> and uh, and so it seems like, oh, it's boom time for skating again. Well, you have these skate parks that are being built but at the same time, you have insurance companies saying, oh, you want to invite people out to your park to skateboard and possibly hurt themselves on their devil's toys? <laughs> well, you're going to have to pay up. 
Yeah, and so with insurance rates spiking and the parks closing, suddenly skating is forced underground. And around the same time that it's forced underground, it's also becoming associated with this newfangled punk music. Ah. And so it is becoming associated with this more aggressive punk and let's be honest, more masculine subculture. And in the 1980s, though, we do see a bit of a resurgence with those old VHS tapes in the VCRs where skaters can record themselves doing tricks and then spread it out as well as far as VHS tape can go. Yeah, I mean, and that really revived this culture and sort of made it into what street skating is today. And I mean, it's just, it's just like the old school effect of social media and the internet. Mm-hmm. And um, not only could these guys record themselves, share their tricks, and then that sort of spreads these new tricks all around that also allows them to more proactively seek out sponsorships. And the whole thing really gets underway again with a little help from technology. Yeah. And in the 1990s, we again see skate skating go pretty mainstream with ESPN's 1995 X Games. And then suddenly it's it's cool. Yes, it's still a subculture. Yes, it's still associated with like outside the mainstream kids, punk music, all that stuff. But it becomes so cool thanks to the X Games that all of a sudden advertisers are using the skater, the image of the skater, to appeal to, you know, all the kids these days. They were using it to sell everything from soft drinks to clothing lines and everything in between. I'm pretty sure I remember seeing uh, advertisements for the now non-existent uh, Coca-Cola product called Surge. That was very like skateboarder. Are you extreme kids? Drink your surge. Is it? I drank so much surge as a child. So much so that when I watched the Futurama episode where Fry drinks a ton of slurm, it just reminded me of my childhood. But I again, like, let's hammer home here that I was the opposite of an extreme child. Whatever. You were pounding that surge, <laughs> you know, getting <laughs> leashing up Sophie and Molly. <laughs> Cruising down the driveway. I sure was. No one could stop you. <laughs> no one could stop me except the bump on the end of the driveway, at which time I inevitably fell off. <laughs> well, Caroline, we just rolled through like 50 years of skateboarding history. We did not mention a single lady. We, yeah. didn't, we didn't mention all the single ladies. <laughs> but we'll find all those single skating ladies right after a quick break. We now want to go back, though, and fill in those blanks, because that's sort of the the overarching history of skateboarding and culture. But a lot of people might not realize that there were a lot of women skating, particularly in those early pre-70s days of skating, when it was more about freestyle and there were skate parks and it wasn't so much focused on street and punk and counterculture, really. Yeah, well, Michael Brook, who's the publisher of Concrete Wave magazine, was quoted in Huck as saying, when sidewalk surfing hit big in the 1960s, both males and females skated. And he points out that the population did skew more towards the guys. But he points out you had Patty McGee doing a handstand on her board, which made the cover of Life magazine in 1965. And that remains one of the most iconic 
skateboarding images of all time. But let's fill in before we get to Patty McGee on our timeline. Let's go a year before that Life magazine image and talk about Linda Benson. Uh, you have handsome surfboards producing a skateboard named after her. It was the Linda Benson model, and it was the first skateboard with a female namesake. And a fellow surfer talking about Linda Benson said she had incredible wave judgment and just ripped the waves apart. And here's this little, she's like five foot two. She's blonde, has a page boy haircut, very Julie Andrews, but blonde and on a surfboard. Um, and she's obviously so cool and so acceptably cool that not only is she popular, but she's popular to the point where a company is creating a skateboard or a sidewalk surfboard in her honor. I wish I had good wave judgment. <laughs> Just I side know. note, that sounds like some like like a really a really valuable life skill. I feel like I wouldn't run into walls as often as I do. Oh God, I know. Me too. I run into door frames all the time. That's I, true. I have bruises on me. I don't know where they come from. Um, but no, I did go somewhere in my mind when I read that quote about how she has incredible wave judgment, and and I immediately started to feel like a panic wave, a, a wave of panic come over me, imagining myself on a surfboard like. In, in a wave and then how I would just be hitting my head on things in the water and, but anyway. Not good. Then you came, then you came back and you had just walked into yeah, a door. It turned, I, I woke up on the floor. And then around the same time, you have Wendy Bearer, who was the only female member of the original Makaha Skateboard Club. She was sponsored by those guys, but later she was also a member of the original Hobie Skateboards and Surf Team. And Hobie's a big name. It also comes up when you read about Patty McGee. Yeah, so that brings us to 1965, when Patty McGee is crowned, (laughs) figuratively, as the first Betty of skateboarding. And Patty, like uh, Linda and Wendy before her, was a surfer, and she got turned on to skating. I mean, she was in California, she was surfing. There are a couple of different stories about how she ended up skating. One is that her brother sort of Frankensteined a skateboard for them and she tried it out that way. The other is that she was um, doing an in-store promotion and the guy who was supposed to demonstrate the skateboard didn't show. So they were like, well, Patty. And she hopped up and skateboarded for the first time in front of 1,500 people. Um, but the the fascinating thing, if you aren't familiar with so-called freestyle skateboarding, which was what people were doing at this time, if you watch videos uh, and even just see stills of Patty McGee, she she's usually doing handstands. She's doing all sorts of tricks that we wouldn't think of today. There were no half pipes for her to drop into. So in addition to her handstands, she would walk the deck. So like walk up the board as it's rolling. She would do 360s. She would do wheelies, nose wheelies. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, all sorts of things. Like it was a lot of you would basically just go down go down a hill while performing all these tricks, sometimes while doing a handstand, which, again, my, like, uh, I feel like my evolutionary, hypersensitive, uh, bodily harm aversion is really triggered by the thought of that. Um, <laughs> and she was sponsored by Hobie Skateboard and toured the country. And because she hit it so big so quickly, she usually is cited as, like, the first pro skateboarder. And it helped that she did make that cover of Skateboarder Magazine, in which she looks just just so 
I don't know, so effortless as yeah. she's skating. What is she skating by a pool? She's wearing some some aqua shorts and a floral crop top. Love it. I know. Well, so she becomes such a great image of skate culture. She she ends up appearing on Johnny Carson. She goes on to win first place at the National Skateboard Championship Girls Division. And then on May 14th, 1965, that's when she lands on the cover of Life magazine doing her signature handstand move. And again, I mean, talk about effortless. Like she just looks, it doesn't even look like there's a skateboard under her hands. It just kind of looks like she's doing like a cartwheel or, or whatever and effortless again. And she's in her very lovely, like white pants, which is another thing that I am terrified of. White pants? Yeah, it's another thing that I can't do. Um, she only went pro for about a year, really, until the skating fad overall kind of died down in the mid-60s. She also, after that, ended up working in snow skiing, turquoise mining, and leathersmithing. So she is a, a Jill of all trades. Yeah, and a fun anecdote about her, when she was touring around um, with Hobie, uh, you'll notice, too, that a lot of times skateboarders uh, w- would do it barefoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that was part of just like California surfer culture, but um, you didn't have like skateboard shoes. And she was touring in New York at one point and a taxi driver refused to let her in because she was just like walking around still barefoot like, oh, what? Hey. Uh, oh, sorry. I'm from California. I don't get this. I don't get this town. Um, but in 2010, she became the first female inductee into the International Association of Skateboard Companies Skateboard Hall of Fame. And she and her daughter launched a skateboard line. I believe it's called the Original Betty Skateboard That's awesome. Company. Yeah. But, I mean, I want to know more about her turquoise mining per- personally. But. Seriously. Yeah, I have I have some orders I can put in. Um, but moving into the mid-70s, you know, skating, like we said, it didn't just die. It just wasn't as mainstream as it used to be. We get Peggy Oakey. She was the only female member of the Z-Boys, the infamous Z-Boys, a.k.a. the original Zephyr skateboard team. Uh, she had an incredible personal style, but she really kind of had a had a hard time from all sides in terms of her skating career. She said, some of the girls didn't like the fact that I skated like a guy, so they protested me to the judges, and one of the judges said I skated better than some of the guys. And it's so fascinating to compare photos of Peggy Oki skating versus Patty McGee, who was only, you know, skating like maybe at most like 10 years before, because Oki has this long hair, she's in ripped jeans, she's, you know, on the street, and it's, it's a much grittier looking style, and that's just how quickly this sport is evolving. And, and those two, of course, were not, not the only women skating at the time either. In fact, we heard from Stuff Mom Never Told You listener, Cecilia, who shared a story with us about her own mom, Michelle McNeil, who picked up skateboarding as a hobby in the 70s. And like Peggy Oki, she was skating alongside the guys. My mom, Michelle McNeil, found out about skateboarding when she started college in 1976. She saw some guys skating on campus at Long Beach City College in California and again outside the Belmont Olympic pool where there was a lot of concrete to skate. The group hanging out by the pool was Russ Howell and his friends. They were really good. There were a few girls around, but none of them actually skating. Mom wanted to skate, not just watch. 
soon after she got her first skateboard and started learning tricks. They skated everywhere they could. Mom had a car so the guys would pile in and go in search of vacant houses with empty backyard pools. They would hop the fence and skate the pools. If the cops came, she was the first to the car so they could all race off. Another friend, Herb Spitzer, was into downhill skating. Signal Hill, near Long Beach, has a steep drop and a short runoff to the main street at the bottom. It's scary but thrilling to try to skate down. Skitter Jim O'Mahony put on the Signal Hill speed run in 1976 to see who could go down the fastest without crashing. Skaters could either stand on their boards or lie flat on a new thing called a skate car. Guy Grundy won in 1976 and got his name in the Guinness Book of World Records. Herb had been in the first race and was racing again in 1977. Mom found out that no girls had entered that first year and thought, hmm, there should be girls competing too. My grandpa owned a machine shop and he helped her make a skate car. Another girl, Leslie Jo Ritzman, entered too. They officially had a women's division of the race. Mom became the first woman in history to skate downhill in a contest observed by the Guinness Book of World Records. Unfortunately, she crashed, and Leslie Joe won the women's division. Mom was not hurt in the crash, but it is pretty spectacular to watch on film. It can be seen in the documentary Signal Hill Speed Run, 1976 to 1978. Also, in the late 70s, skate parks were popping up all over. She frequented the Concrete Wave in Anaheim, which was the first skate park in the Southern California area, as well as the Runway in Carson and Skatopia in Orange County. At the skate parks, girls really had to hold their own. When waiting for your turn, you had to be quick and aggressive, or the guys would snake in front of you. My mom has skated on and off since then, and even now, at 57, rides her longboard in Honolulu, Hawaii. She is still friends with Herb, Guy, and others from the old gang. She is an honorary member of the University of Hawaii Women's Skate Club, the Wahine on Wheels, run by Jenny Reese. I feel very lucky to have such an inspirational and badass mom. Well, I love it. And so while Michelle was out there honing her skills with her skating hobby, there were some other really amazing role model women doing this professionally. You've got Ellen Berryman, who started skating in 1975 when she met a whole bunch of skater dudes uh, near her house. And she had actually started out as a gymnast, which is a little bit different from some of the women we've talked about who got their start as surfers. Um, but also during this time that Ellen is getting her start, remember the urethane wheel had just been invented, which made things a little bit sturdier, a little bit safer better than the clay wheel. And in a Q&A with Longboard Girls Crew, Ellen said that the most important thing that got carried over from this time period was the fact that everyone had started to skate in pools, empty pools, obviously, with their urethane-wheeled skateboards, and that carried over into vertical skating. And so she says the street skating we see today is, of course, a natural evolution from the 70s. Yeah, and Ellen O'Neill is someone often cited as uh, a, a leading lady of the the freestyle scene. She was an early 70s SoCal freestyle sensation. And I do love looking at photos of her, and we'll definitely have some posted or at least linked to in the stuff I'm never told you.com podcast post so you can see them as well. Because, I mean, talk about a combination of acrobatics and uh, skateboarding that really drives home the kind of, I mean, like legit tricks that people were doing before they had, again, before they had 
half pipes and, and things like that that we would normally think of with tricks today. Yeah. And Ellen O'Neill, I love I love reading about where these women got their start. She started skating purely as a way to get around and used a skateboard on her paper route. That's fantastic. Yeah, and she was such a freestyle sensation during that time that she ended up working at a San Diego skate park in the late 70s as one of their on-site pros. So she wasn't just like pushed aside as some, you know, some girl to be forgotten about. She worked as a professional skater to help other kids. And when it comes to longboarding, which interestingly today, more girls have been gravitating toward that because it has traditionally been a little bit friendlier to lady skaters uh, who probably are cringing at the use of the phrase lady skaters. Um, there's Edie Robinson, who was a longboard star in her day. So clearly women can skateboard. Yeah. We've been skateboarding since skateboards were first invented. Yeah, because it wasn't a thing. I mean, why wouldn't women skate? Exactly. And so there was that pre-gendered era of skateboarding. So let's take a closer look, though, at how skateboarding really turned so male-dominated. Yeah, and this is going back to Huck Magazine, an article by Tetsuhiko Endo, uh, which is really interesting and really depressing all at the same time to sort of learn about that evolution of skating being this sort of like wonderful, but still kind of countercultury, egalitarian sport slash activity back in the day uh, to being something that was just geared towards uh, the the drinkers of surge. <laughs> the drinkers of surge, yes. Um, and we touched on it earlier. I mean, it has a lot to do with a dwindling number of skate parks and more niche marketing to guys skaters. And I mean, I think that, that the skate park factor is so huge when you think about the fact that boys might be at more liberty than girls to just roam the streets and find, you know, an empty parking lot or an abandoned building, whatever kind of space that might be deemed too dangerous for a girl to go out and do. Yeah. And so the fact that skateboarding culture merged with that punk culture, uh, Indo writes, it sort of changed the image. It got a lot more aggressive, a lot more underground. And Cindy Whitehead, who is a former pro skateboarder and now board designer and sports stylist, experienced this firsthand. She said, quote, skate parks started dying off. And once that happened, we didn't have sanctioned contests. We had backyard ramps and pools, which we originally started in. So skateboarding went back underground and the industry went dormant for many years. So, I mean, across the board, if you were interested in skateboarding at that time, you had to be really persistent in order to make it happen, in order to keep skating, find spaces to skate, find people to skate with. But more and more and more, if you were a girl interested in skateboarding, there were fewer and fewer acceptable spaces for you to do that. Yeah, and it was, well, and it was also getting to the point where if you were a girl who walked up to a bunch of guys skating and you said, like, hey, I want to join in, what are you doing? You might just get laughed out of the pool, the swimming pool, <laughs> yeah. because it was by then it was starting to become so entrenched as a guy thing or a dude thing, that girls who expressed any interest in it, it was like, why? This is, you're not welcome here. This is too dangerous for you. Yeah, and Catherine Sierra, in that Wired Magazine article we talked about a little while ago, 
talks about this in, in the 1980s in particular, when it comes to skate culture. She says that it devolved from a vibrant, reasonably gender-balanced community into an aggressively narrow demographic of teen boys. And with this evolution of skating and how it's becoming more of sort of this underground thing, we're moving away from the freestyle skating that had been so popular and that had been so open to girls and women. And suddenly um, things like, you know, working on your footwork and flat tricks on pavement like Patty McGee was so great at, those are out. Street skating is in and girls are no longer considered real skaters. It's sort of like the conversation that we have around geek girls nowadays. Yeah, and girls in gaming. Mm-hmm. Girls aren't real gamers. That whole real question coming up again and again. Um, so from there, we you know, we mentioned the influence of VHS and you have guys recording themselves and watching other guys do tricks and they're sharing and this culture is spreading. And these dudes are really rebuilding the industry in the 80s and 90s. This is when Tony Hawk and his pals really start to make an inroad. And as it develops, the marketing starts to be focused narrower and narrower onto specifically guys under 18. Although, of course, you do have exceptions. There is, for instance, Alyssa Steamer, known as the godmother of street skating. Uh, she was the first pro street skater in the sense that we think of it today and also a four-time X Games gold medalist. She is someone not to be messed with. Yeah, but she was also the only female character that you could be in Tony Hawk's pro skater video game. So it's like, well, here is your one female idol uh, or mentor or, you know, role model that you get. You just get the one. And I mean, she's an awesome skater, but <laughs> it's like, oh, were there really no other girls skating in the 90s? Not a lot. Yeah, not a lot. Definitely not a lot. So by this point, then, sociologically speaking, skateboarding has become not only a male-dominated subculture, but girl skating is almost a subculture within a subculture, which is really interesting to think about, too. Yeah. So that was then. You know, we're, we're past the days of the VHS, Caroline. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's coming back. Yeah, just like a cassette? Exactly. Who knows? Hang on to those those VHSs, friends. So, Caroline, to borrow some VHS terminology, if we fast forward <laughs> to today, um, you know, not only do we have VHS, well, no, no, we don't have VHS anymore, but Thrasher Magazine is still around, and we have the Internet. What's going on? Uh, skateboarding has become mainstream so has a gender balance been restored no <laughs> not really no not really even though more girls are skating yeah probably than ever before yeah and it's actually more girls internationally are skating yeah so caroline that pretty much covers skateboarding the past but in our next episode we need to talk about skateboarding for women in the present and also rolling into the future. And in the meantime, though, we want to hear from listeners about their skateboarding experiences. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can email us. I would love to hear from any other listeners who have a badass skateboarding mom like Michelle. Or if you yourself are a badass skateboarding mom, please email us. Send us pictures if you want to as well. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com, again, is the email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. 
Well, I have a letter here from Nicole in response to our Man Caves episode. Uh, subject line, lesbian response to Man Cave podcast. So very straightforward. Love it. Uh, Nicole says, I listened to your podcast about man caves more than ready to raise my feminist flag in fury and anger. But instead, I found myself taking a different perspective than before. With the perceived feminization of the workplace, it's natural for men to want to masculinize the home, even if most homes are already gender neutral by default. That being said, I think the hyper-masculine and expensive man cave is unnecessary and, if used as an escape, unhealthy. I grew up in a family where the women had craft rooms and the men had workshops, so if having his own man cave is important to a man in a heterosexual relationship, then his female companion deserves to have her own equivalent. As a married lesbian, I also want to comment on she sheds. My wife and I decided early on that having a private office for us to use interchangeably is important and that when in use, the other is not allowed to enter. When we finally have kids, they will not be allowed into the office either, which I think is a, is pretty normal. And despite the both of us being rather traditionally feminine, our home is still very gender neutral with the only indicator of our combined girliness being the abundance of candles packed into every available space. I can't imagine that our office or she shed will be anything other than a professional and polished area where we can work in peace. As always, thank you for all the hard work and research you both do. It's helped make me a better and more open person. And thank you, Nikki. Sarah wrote us a letter subject line. My dad bod. She writes, as soon as I heard your podcast on dad bods, I knew I had to write in. I'm 21 and going into my senior year of college that has no fraternities or sororities. Since the topic came up in the media, my friends can't stop talking about it. My fitness obsessed and lesbian friends don't get the appeal, but one of my roommates who has a boyfriend understands. She says, I love that he's fit, but not more fit than me. And he'll race me to see who can eat more chicken wings. In the spirit of disclosure, my dad himself doesn't have a dad bod. He's tall and skinny, but the guy I'm currently interested in is the epitome of the term. He's over six feet tall and pushing 220, but is also a D3 college athlete and is generally seen as in shape and attractive. I asked my roommates if they could think of a female equivalent of the dad bod, and one of them replied that I have it. I'm about 5'7 and 120 with a skinny waist but wide hips. I have no visible muscle and my arms and tummy sure aren't toned at all due to my sporadic workout schedule and love of junk food. I'm just lucky to have a quick metabolism, which enables me to act like a guy who would normally get a dad bod, but still maintain the physique of a quote-unquote relatively desirable college-age woman. I don't think the standard is right or fair, but I had to write in and tell you a little bit from a young adult perspective. So thank you, Sarah. I love your letter. And um, a chicken wing eating contest is the most romantic thing I can imagine. <laughs> so keep up that dad bod. And if you've got letters to send to us about dad bods, skateboarding, she sheds, or whatever's on your mind, momstuffathowstuffworks.com is where you can send them. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to all of our skateboarding Hearst resources, head on over to Stuff Mom Never Told You. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 